Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my coarsely categorized friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we talk about median splits and other ways that continuous variables might be categorized to simplify analyses and the often very high costs of doing so. Along the way, we also mention Never Have I Ever, Handcuffs, Gold Hoop Earrings, Bungee Jumping, Eric, Henry, and Penny, Having a Mini, Chug Jugs, Hill Street Blues, Med Kits and Bandages, Patrick's Mind's Eye, Isn't It Ironic, Leveling Up, Asteroids, and Gulf Monks. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to thank you, if I may. Ooh, for... Yeah, hang on. And what was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember. You really stepped up to try to help our website evolve from the thing that it originally was. And I was going through the new Quantitude website. What's the address for that? Quantitudepod.org. There you go. Notice the ORG makes us look like better people. <laughs> Yeah, that's the tipping point. <laughs> so I, I was going through it and you did such a nice job overseeing it. It has so many cool things for people who really want to incorporate some of the episodes into their teaching or just to look up stuff for their own references. You did a great job. And so I just wanted to thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. I think singularly the coolest part of it is when you go to the landing page, it's got these kind of starry things that mm -hmm. rotate around. <laughs> and if you hover your cursor over it, they connect kind of like a social network map. And I have spent more time than I am willing to admit running my cursor around. So the take-home message for people is, if you go to our website, just drag your mouse over the main page if you get nothing else out of it. Yeah, was I not clear on that? Yeah, I no. <laughs> thought I was pretty clear on that. No, no, I understand how you like shiny objects. But anyway, so thank you for that. You are welcome. The other thing that I'm excited about with it is the portal where both you can submit a message or a question or a suggestion. Yeah. Or now this one's a little dangerous. You can join a mailing list we have. Mm. Now, what's interesting is we don't actually have a mailing list, but you can <laughs> join it. But through the portal, we got a question with an associated audio file that was awesome because we have so many more of these episodes to record and no topics to fill them. Yeah, we got nothing. We deeply appreciate when somebody tells us what to do. Mm -hmm. How many years have you been married now? <laughs> I'm shutting that thread down right now. <laughs> Do you want to briefly introduce the clip and we can play it? Yeah, very briefly. The clip is from Sally Larson, and she hits upon a topic that I think so many of us encounter. And I don't know that I want to say anything more than that. Other than she has a wonderful accent, and I love that. To them, it's not an accent, Patrick. And it's not a pirate. Arg! I be Sally Larson. Sally, I am so sorry. Hi Quantitude, my name is Sally Larson and I'm a final year graduate student at the University of New England in a place called Armadale in Australia. I primarily study developmental patterns of reading and maths across the middle school years, but I also work a lot with different kinds of survey data in educational settings. My question is to do with the practice of dichotomizing or categorizing continuous variables and then using them as predictive variables in statistical analyses. These might be Likert scale items that come out extremely skewed, or something I often see is a predictor like socioeconomic status, which is categorized into quartiles before being used as a predictor of academic achievement outcomes. 
So I've noticed there are quite a few published articles advising very strongly against ever categorizing continuous variables. And what I'd really like to hear about is, well, what are the effects of doing this on different kinds of statistical analyses and the inferences that we make from them? And are there ever any instances where it's a defensible strategy? Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think about this issue. You know what this makes me think of? Hmm. Do you remember back in the day, did you ever play Never Have I Ever? Uh, <laughs> Probably not, because your imaginary friends wouldn't have asked you that. <laughs> None of the voices in my head and I played that. Like every kid's game, you can make it into a drinking game, mm -hmm. <laughs> which then comes off the rails at about the third round. Mm -hmm. But the premise is you say, never have I ever, and you say something you've never done. And then around the circle, people have to raise their hand if they have done that thing. Okay. So this definitely is a never have I ever kind of question. So let's demonstrate. Uh, All right. I know we didn't talk about this before. So let's try some <laughs> of this. All right. So I'm nervous. Uh, never have I ever won a trophy. Okay. Raising hand, limited utility in this mode of communication. Okay. Okay. So what do I do? You drink. No, do I? Yeah, I drink. You drink. We all drink. I don't know. Somehow there's drinking. All right. I might be tempted to say yes or no on your part. All right. Yes, I have won some trophies growing up. I find it hard to believe that you never won a trophy. Not one. Because you're an athletic guy, you're... Oh, but I'm awful. I do all sorts of things, but I'm bad at all of them. Nope, never won a trophy. Huh, not even world's greatest dad? I bought myself one of those, but oh. I don't think that counts. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> okay, now I think by the rules is I have to drink... And since it's 8 a.m., I'm just going to pour coffee. More, quote, coffee. Okay, you do one. Uh, all right. Never have I ever had a run-in with the law. Okay, dude, I don't believe that one either. Uh, it depends how you define run-in. Why don't you restate it? I don't mean to micromanage here. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, go ahead and say, never have I ever been put in handcuffs by an authority. <laughs> okay. Never have I ever put, <laughs> been put in handcuffs by an authority. That's a true statement. Okay. I have. Wow. Are you allowed to talk about it? Several times. <laughs> <laughs> Several. It was a misunderstanding. Okay. Yeah. It turns out much of life is based on clear communication and... I was not good at communicating as a young man <laughs> under conditions in which I had been overserved. Let's just put it that way. The key walkaway point is this was not my fault. Uh huh. Uh, never have I ever had a tattoo. Oh, nor have I. Okay. All right. Never have I ever had a piercing. Oh, dude. <laughs> I had an ugly five years with a gold hoop earring. No, you did not. Yes, I did. Shut up. Yeah. And. <laughs> To make it worse, I was in my, like, late 20s. Oh. Yeah. You were such a tool. <laughs> uh, never have I ever bungee jumped. I have done this. Seriously? I have done it twice. What's wrong with you? Why would you ever do that? It was the best. There was a bridge built specifically for bungee jumping in Nanaimo, British Columbia. <gasps> I've been to Nanaimo. It's gorgeous. And they strapped you in by your ankles and you jumped off this bridge into a river and you could get dunked if you wanted to or not. It was spectacular. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> All right. So thinking about Sally. 
Never have I ever not artificially <laughs> categorized a continuous variable. Now, I don't know how to raise my hand or not raise my hand to that one, but I will confess in the very first paper that I was associated with that got published, which is a very, very long time ago, there was a variable where we did an extreme groups analysis on it. Oh. So there was some categorization involved. So whatever it means, I drink, don't drink, run around naked, don't run around. I don't know what it is right now, but I'm guilty of the same crime, I would say. So I have done the same. Mm -hmm. I have made a binary dependent variable out of a drinking measure to look at abstainers and non-abstainers. Mm -hmm. I have made a young and old group of kids so I could do a multiple group item response theory model to look for different impact by age. So yes, I have done that. But like everything we've talked about on this podcast, one, somehow I will be able to work in an airplane analogy. <laughs> and two, you've got to know the downstream costs mm -hmm. of how you're going to pay the reaper. Yeah. And I think Sally actually laid out a really nice architecture for the things that we can talk about during this episode. Before we do, however, something you just said made me think of some other aspect of Sally's message. Ooh, does it involve airplanes? <laughs> Sally, I learned through back-channel communication, has three children, Eric, Henry, and Penny. And they openly suffer listening to Quantitude when they're driving around in the car. Oh, it's so boring. It's statistics. The thing that you said that reminded me of that was categorizing people into young and old. So one of her kids, and I think Eric is the older 12-year-old, he was busting on us for being two old people who have this cute little podcast while he's off listening to YouTubers with millions of subscribers who are just playing Fortnite all day and recording that. Hey, everyone. Welcome to my YouTube channel. Let's go, baby! First up! Let's go, Let's baby! Go. For the record, I completely take exception to him characterizing us as old. Wait, did you want to pee before we record? No, I'm good. I already went just now. All right. Yeah. No, I got, I got to go. Give me just a sec. Okay. So let's go back to some basics. Okay. What do we even mean by the median split? Yeah. So you have some nice continuous variable. It might be a variable that has to do with blood pressure or your resting heart rate or how many shield points you have in Fortnite. There could be a variety of different things that you have. Oh, I like what you did there. Eric, I would suggest paying attention. Are your shield points a little low right now? You need a mini? We'll wait. <laughs> anyway, so you've got a number of variables that are inherently continuous or at least close enough to continuous, but for some motivation, you decide that you would like to make categories out of it. And Sally gave us some examples. The most common that you said is a median split. And as the name implies, it would mean that you take the distribution that you have, you decide where the median is, and you break it up into two categories that you refer to as high-low or some other dichotomized kind of definition. That's right. You're trying to make more or less equal groups that are low and high. Now, of course, there are lots of other ways that someone might choose to form groups. That's the most common if you're doing it on some particular scale, then you might choose a midpoint of a scale. Imagine you have some eight-point rating scale just for simplicity, and you choose all the people who responded in the lower four categories in one, people in the upper four categories in another. So you could use some property of the variable itself. I mentioned earlier about extreme groups. So we might even decide, for some reason, to leave the folks in the middle out 
and focus primarily on some upper chunk, like an upper third or an upper quarter, historically the upper and lower 27% for a variety of interesting reasons. Or there might be some theoretical reason that people choose a particular cut point. But at the end of the day, most of what we're going to talk about is an artificial dichotomization and the potential problems might be associated with that. So whatever it is we do is we somehow are taking a continuum and whether it be truly continuous or ordinal or I got to tell you, you gave Sally a pass by not murdering a kitten when she (laughs) said Likert. It's true. I was too nice to her because she so kindly sent us a question. But since you mentioned it, Sally, intervention time. You did say Likert, and I believe that in the sponsors section of Season 1, Episode 9, we were very clear on this point. Today's episode is sponsored by the Rensis Likert Foundation, reminding you that every time you say Likert, a kitten dies. A kitten dies. It's on your head. What I'd like to do is still stick to some fundamentals and to talk about, well, back in the day, what was the motivation for doing this? So you had some continuous covariate. Let's just say you do a median split Mm -hmm. and you make a binary variable. What are some motivations for doing this? Well, remember, we got to get in the way back machine to put ourselves back in what models were available, what computer programs were available, Mm -hmm. or more specifically, what punch card sets we (laughs) could make to feed through. And it was often very difficult to bring in truly continuous predictors into what we now think about as the general linear model. Mm -hmm. Early on, it was an analysis of variance. There were categorical independent variables. There was a continuous dependent variable. You may have been very well motivated to have what you think about as a covariate that you want to control for that's continuous, but it's difficult to work in the model. Mm -hmm. But if you make a median split in a binary, then it just becomes a factor in an analysis of variance. So going back to the earliest days was a way of simplifying the models where you can just say they're young and old. And it's a factor in the design matrix in an ANOVA, and it allowed us to use the typical architecture we had back at that time. And whatever the rationales were back in the day, those have persisted. What I mean is that there's been this legacy in a lot of fields. Well, that's the way we do it, to the point where those groups become reified. This is what it means to be high cholesterol. This is the high blood pressure group. This is at risk. You know, think about any particular label. If you do that enough times, if that becomes a tradition in a particular field, then people will even start avoiding using more modern methods because that's the way it has always been done. So, yeah, a lot of the origins have to do with maybe some statistical limitations, but they're also statistical limitations that don't really exist today. And that's why it's so much fun to talk about this, because it's not as simple as saying never categorize a continuous variable. Mm -hmm. This would be a refreshingly short episode if we just said never, ever categorize a continuous measure. Thanks so much, people. We really appreciate you sharing your time with us. It would be a relief to have like a five-minute episode to a lot of people out there. Especially for Sally's kids. Yeah. We're just not going to let that happen. (laughs) Again, what you're raising is that notion of quantity versus kind. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in prior episodes. This is a corner of mixture modeling and things like that. Can you run up and down a number line and you just have more or less of a particular construct that's being assessed? 
or at some point does that thing become something different? Do you move from being not depressed to depressed, even Mm -hmm. though there's a numerical continuum that underlies that in various ways that we would test? But again, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about what we know already about where you pay the reaper. So you have this nice continuum, you make a discrete measure out of it, maybe it is to simplify the analyses, maybe it's to allow you to stay in an analytic framework that you're comfortable in, or that you learned, or that you like, or that is typical for your area of work. People expect to see analysis in this way. It is true that it often eases the presentation of results. Yeah. You can have the young and the old, and here are the distributions, here's the scatter plots, here are the summary statistics for those. All of that is true, but one of the golden rules we have in all of quant is never throw away data, never throw away information. Mm -hmm. What we have to realize right out of the gates is artificially categorizing a continuum is doing exactly that. So let's go ahead and move to our mind's eye. (laughs) Come on, people. Eric, pay attention. We're going to talk about a univariate normal distribution. So picture in your mind's eye the inverse of sigma square root of 2 pi e to the negative. (laughs) It's crystal clear, Patrick. It's crystal clear. (laughs) But picture a normal distribution. Sure. So we've got some continuum that ranges from 1 to 20. And let's say that you have an assignment rule that a score that is greater or equal to 10 goes into group one and less Mm -hmm. than 10 goes into group zero. If you get a one, you go into zero. If you get a 20, you go into group one. All right, that's working well. You get a two, you go into group zero. You get a 19, you go into group one. Ah, what can possibly go wrong? I like it. You get a nine, you go into group zero. You get a 10, you go into group one. Uh, Eric is saying, that's not fair from a statistical perspective. No, you are throwing away information. That's right. Eric, you would never say that someone with 51 health points has high health and someone with 50 health points has low health. They're right next to each other. When you do this, just know that when you artificially categorize something, you are throwing away information. All right, so we've dropped into a zone where it looks like there's going to be a lot of engagements here. So, Patrick, let's each take a chug jug. I know it's going to take 15 seconds and we can't move. Let's completely restore health and shield and let's get at the litany of statistical problems. Are you ready to just lock and load? Did you just have a mini stroke? (laughs) All right, I've got my chug jug. Good. I hope you're happy, Eric. We've defined what it is. We've talked about what your motivations might be, Mm -hmm. but now we move to how do you pay the reaper? There have been decades of work in what are the downstream costs for doing this. Mm -hmm. Now, like a lot of stuff that we talk about, some of those costs might be acceptable to you if it allows you to meet another goal, right? We have short cons and we have long cons, and your long con might be to achieve something that requires a discrete measure, and you're willing to pay the short con cost. But the thing is, you got to know what that cost is. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So one of the things we're going to have in the show notes, and I still remain so excited about being able to say that, mm-hmm. is there is a wonderful paper by Bud McCallum and colleagues that goes through all of this, what are the issues, what are the downstream costs, what should you be aware of? And they outline very nicely what some of the perceived benefits are, but then what some of the actual costs are that are invoked when you do this in your own work. And the reference is McCallum, Zhang, Preacher, and Rucker back in 2002, Psych Methods. Does that sound right? That's exactly right. And we will put that citation up. It is an absolutely wonderful paper, very colloquial, and just here's the issue, here are the costs. Did you ever watch Hill Street Blues? Enough to know what you're going to say. Yep, exactly. So Hill Street Blues, I was addicted to it as a kid, and they would start in the morning with all the women and men uh, who were about to go out on patrol, and the grizzled old sergeant would end everything with, let's be careful out there. And I feel like that's the McCallum paper is going through it all, and then at the end is, let's be careful out there. I like that. So tell me some of the limitations. Wow. Once you uncork, they really start falling out along the lines of information being lost, right? So that was one of the things that you said. We don't like to throw out data. We don't like to throw out information about individual differences. Generally speaking, when you do so, you throw out information, you will often lose power. Once you have lost information about individual differences, you lose information about the ability to relate those individual differences to other variables that you care about, other outcomes, other covariates, etc. So first and foremost, you can lose a tremendous amount of power as a result of this kind of artificial categorization. And a line that I like that Jack Cohen had in his early work on power is categorizing a continuous measure from a power perspective is tantamount to losing sample size. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Exactly, right? Is it makes it really salient. Yeah. Go ahead and have your sample of 120 that your blood and sweat and tears went in to gather and assess and interview and upload and clean and prepare for analysis and take those 120 cases do a median split, and now you have 80 cases. Yeah, why would you do that? You are functionally just reducing your effective sample size. Remember, variability is good. Mm-hmm. More often than not, in a statistical model, variability is good. Individual differences are good. Think about restriction of range. Think about, you know, that you have some measure of 1 to 10 and everybody falls between 3, 4, and 5 variability is good and you're taking that variability crumbling it up and throwing it into the trash can intentionally so that you can simplify your analyses Mm -hmm. so yeah the drunken punch in the face right out of the gate is loss of power so the put in handcuffs and led away punch in the face is no is that too too close to home yeah it's We talked about this. Never have I ever raised something that was very sensitive to my partner with the intent of embarrassing them. Okay. Okay, anyway, let's stay on track. We're losing Eric. All right, we'll throw him some med kits and bandages just to help restore some of his health. All right, Eric's back with us. So, yes, losing power, losing variability, dropping our effective sample size. 
on several prior episodes, we've talked about models that are available for discrete categorizations where we have binary or trichotomous or an ordinal kind of variable or Likert, 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 Likert. It attenuates correlations. So picture a bivariate plot. You're driving, so we'll keep it simple. X is normally distributed. Y is normally distributed. There's a really pretty ellipse that is tilted up Mm -hmm. at a particular angle. And the correlation that corresponds to that is 0.5 for the continuum. Mm -hmm. Categorize that in 10 bins. And the correlation is maybe 0.48, 9 bins, 8 bins, 7 bins. Correlation maybe goes 48, 47, 45, five bins, four bins, three bins, you get down to two bins and the correlation is maybe 0.3 yeah. of a true correlation of 0.5. So again, let's think about the replication crisis. Let's think about working in a field that is chronically underpowered. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a median split and reduce our effective size. And we get a twofer because along with that, the actual estimated correlation is going to go from 0.5 to 0.3. And I want to tack something onto that because sometimes what people will say is, well, it was still statistically significant. We're still able to detect it. And the thing that we have to keep sight of that I think is often lost is that statistical significance is not really the goal. I mean, it's one of the things that we really hope to achieve so that we get a permission slip to be able to talk about things. But our ultimate goal is to understand how some system functions. And that would include, in your example, understanding that the correlation between two variables is actually 0.5, not that it's 0.25. So we have to remember our goal is not just statistical significance. It's understanding the magnitudes of the relations so we can move forward with a fuller understanding of a particular system. And adding to that is... My little bivariate contour plot assumes a linear relation. I'm talking about a correlation of 0.5. Now go ahead and picture maybe a slight quadratic. Mm. Not like hardcore where it flips back down, but just go ahead and bend that line. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to show that nonlinearities are completely obliterated by these artificial dichotomizations. Well, obviously, right? I mean, if you make two groups, you're not, (laughs) you can't see a curvature when you've only got two points out there. So that information just goes away. And if your goal is to understand that curvature, then this is gone. Poof. And a lot of the developments early on showed these in bivariate cases. So what we're talking about right now is just a simple XY relation. But remember, we're taking these to a system of linear equations. Mm -hmm. So the easiest one is just a multiple predictor regression. So we have a set of Xs and we have some dependent variable Y. And now not only are you messing with the correlations between your dichotomized predictor and the dependent variable, but every one of the correlations with the other predictors goes into the calculation of those model estimates and all the things that we draw from that. So when you move into a multidimensional space, it becomes a cat rodeo. <laughs> you don't know where these things are going to be biased. And then how many of you have recently published only a multiple regression as your core analyses? Certainly, possibly. Mm-hmm. But a whole lot of these are moving to path analysis or multiple indicator latent factors or multiple group models. And then you're off to the races. For sure. 
But even at that fundamental level of having a multiple regression with only two predictors, it completely can wreak havoc with what you have. Imagine that you have a covariate, right? Well, we understand if we dichotomize a covariate, then that covariate can become of much less value. On the other hand, if we have a continuous covariate, but we have dichotomized our key predictor, we can also find that the relation between those two is attenuated to the point of not actually getting the value out of the covariate that we need. It leads to even bigger troubles because there are combinations of collinearity between the two predictors where you can actually induce spurious relations between them because of the dichotomization. And then all of a sudden you're seeing things that wouldn't have been there if you had had things left in their continuous form. So this gets to be just a hot mess, even in regression. And one of the things that I worry about, especially in this world, is, you know, moderation is a topic that people care a lot about. And they might want to do a regression. Let's just make it a very simple thing so that Patrick's mind's eye can be used to to do this. If you were just doing a regression involving X and Y and you wanted to assess the relation, but then you say something like, I would like to know whether that relation is moderated by socioeconomic status. And so what do you do? You go off and you do a median split on some, we'll say an income variable, and you define some group as high socioeconomic status and another group as low socioeconomic status. And you find that there is no difference in the XY relation when you compare the group that is designated as high SES versus the group that's designated as low SES. Well, you've just taken out most of the information about SES to be able to detect it. And so what do you do in the end? You claim that SES does not moderate the XY relation, but you neutered SES completely. You know, you would have a very hard time finding it. So one of the things that I leave with as having a special concern is that where people are interested in understanding these kinds of moderated relations, in the end, they wind up accepting some null hypothesis about there being no moderation, like, woohoo! We have just enhanced the generalizability of this XY relation because it's not moderated by this other thing. Well, you gave it no shot of being moderated by that other thing when you wound up dichotomizing it. This is really, I think, dangerous in terms of what it sets people up for in terms of generalization. And McCallum talks about how that very situation is the reason why people would artificially categorize in the first place, (laughs) right? There's a total circularity. Mm -hmm. They want to have high-low in this and high-low in that and then see if the difference between high and low on one is significantly different if you're high versus low on the other, right? Mm -hmm. That's the interaction is, is there a difference in the differences? And the entire motivation is to do a median split so that you can test the interaction. But in the act of doing a median split, you cut your legs out from under yourself in testing the interaction. And isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Not one thing in that song is ironic. (laughs) Not one. Which makes it a little too. Okay, that's not what she was after. Everything in there, it just sucks. Right. (laughs) A fire truck on fire? That's ironic. Okay. Raining on your wedding day? Yeah, that just sucks. It's like rain. Isn't it a bummer, don't you think? We feel very passionate about a wide array of topics here on Quantitude. Whew. 
So another thing to consider here is how this undermines replication. Because if you do study A and I do study B and they are replicates of each other, Mm -hmm. we use the same sampling design, we use the same measures, we use the same analytic method, we do a true replication and we each do median splits, by sampling variability, we're going to have different median splits. Absolutely. Our groups are going to represent different individuals. And even though we're doing a carbon copy of the two studies, we are very likely going to end up in different places solely because of how we artificially categorized our continuum. That's right. Your median and my median are not the same medians. If I have an individual with a nine and you have an individual with a nine, my median is eight and your median is 10. We're fundamentally saying those two people are different. That's right. Based on the distribution of our sample, this is a huge threat to replication and starting to build a cohesive, consistent, reproducible, and yes, open science. Right. So just hear the words here. What Patrick is saying is that you have a person who weighs a certain amount or has a certain uh, body mass index. And in this study, that person is categorized as obese. In this other study, the person is not categorized as obese, not because of that person, but because of the other people who were sampled around that individual. There should be a part of you that just feels like that is horribly wrong. That's a great way of describing that. Thank you. All right. There's another important issue that we have to deal with, and I know you know what it is. Let's kick it up a notch. So let's say we were to level up and... (laughs) Is that a real term? I don't know. I just made that up. Yeah. Okay. I only played asteroids. That's all I know. (laughs) Okay. So what we've been talking a lot about is you take a continuum and you artificially categorize it often for expediency. Mm -hmm. Makes things easier. It allows you to use an analysis you're comfortable with. It's consistent with a framework that your field is used to seeing. But what if you believe discrete groups really do exist? Yeah. And yes, everybody says there's individual variability on a continuum of depressive symptomatology, but at some point you move from being not depressed to depressed. Mm -hmm. Does that change things at all? I would say if someone had to have a rationale for wanting to form categories... The start of a good one would be that you actually believe that there are these underlying, what you and I would call latent classes. And if that's the case, then in some ways, what that would imply is that along the depression continuum, a lot of aspects of those scores are really noise. If there really is some state of being depressed, then deviations of scores are really just making it hard to inform you as to who has reached that particular clinical state. The term I think Paul Meal used was that there are taxa, but the idea that there really are these categories, and we're trying to use the information that we have on a continuous variable to inform us in terms of making proper categorization. So I could see that as being a real thing. Then the question is, is what we're doing with the median split actually getting us to those taxa that we believe exist? And I think the answer is probably like almost never. 
Yeah. I think there are two issues in play is the one is what you just said. So on a single variable that you're going to do a median split and identify those latent classes mm-hmm. is not well suited <laughs> to put it that way. There are alternatives, right? What do you tell mm-hmm. your kid as a parent? Is It was like there are alternative choices that mm-hmm. you could have considered and made when running from the police. Police, police. that's one issue but the other issue that is kind of milling about at the same time is these same issues hold that we're talking about now just because you say if you are 10 and above you're depressed and if you're nine or below you are not depressed Mm -hmm. that doesn't sidestep the issue right You've done exactly the same thing by taking that individual variability in depressive symptomatology and created two discrete groups. You have thrown away variability, you have thrown away information, you have reduced power, you have reduced correlations. Now, it's complicated because in diagnostic research, this is something you do believe exists. There Mm -hmm. are depressed individuals and there are not depressed individuals. And as Paul Meal would talk about, these are qualitatively different, not just quantitatively, mm-hmm. right? Is that if you're talking about discrete groups or latent classes, is there's often a belief that you move from quantitative individual variability to qualitative distinctions. Meal's great line is they're gophers and they're chipmunks, but there are no goaf monks. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that there are things that are just distinctly different. He even has a drawing of a goaf monk. Uh-huh. And you just simply need to know again that downstream pain, the Reaper, is simply stating your belief that these are qualitatively different doesn't change a thing on collapsing a continuum into two discrete groups. Yeah. And I think people who use the rationale that I believe that there are distinct groups or I believe that there are these qualitative distinctions that exist, I think they actually have to present some evidence that that's the case, that there is a distinct grouping perhaps or a lot of prior literature that has shown that data congeal around these clusters or classes or taxa, however you want to put it, and that there are meaningful ways to make those kinds of classifications. So I am not opposed to the idea of taxa, not at all, but I am opposed to to people using crappy ways to just sort of justify that and classify people. It's sloppy as far as I'm concerned. Yep. And again, it brings us to the statistical conceptualization of slapping lipstick on the pig, (laughs) which is don't use that as cover for just being able to do a two by two ANOVA because it's just easier. Mm -hmm. There are very well-intentioned motivations for looking at these latent classes, looking at these taxa. My original training is clinical psychology, and it is based around the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Disorders. Right. These are incredibly important. But you are taking a continuum and making a binary variable, and all of these things we're talking about are still present. And you have to be aware of that as you proceed with your own work. In the end, it's about the quantity and the quality of the information that we have available to use, right? So we have a prior episode named something like Grumpy Old Man and Village Idiot Talk About (laughs) Reliability or something. Mm -hmm. And it comes as a shock to no one that I was the Village Idiot and that you were the Grumpy Old Man. 
But we talked a lot about reliability. Yeah. And reliability is something that is near and dear to you as it should be to all of us. One of the things McCallum talks about is the perception that creating groups increases reliability. Mm-hmm. And they make a pretty interesting argument that not only does it not, but it can reduce reliability in doing that. Do you have insights on that? Well, you know, what some people will say, and I think it's more of a sort of a colloquial explanation, what some people will say is, well, if you really get down into the weeds and you look at scores that are next to each other, I mean, you can't really tell the difference between those, right? That's just noise. And so what we're doing is we're creating a more reliable system. And again, I'm using that very colloquially a more reliable system by moving to more gross categorizations that we're more comfortable with sort of getting rid of some of that score to score kind of noise. And that's a weird argument because it's almost using reliability in ways that have very little to do with our notions of the assessment of reliability. If we do that little experiment that you described previously correlationally, and we went through and we watched the correlation drop off as we took information out by categorizing things, exactly the same thing (laughs) would happen if we were assessing reliability by whatever your favorite measure of reliability, let's say a, a McDonald's Omega, for example. If you just took a variable and you started making it coarser and coarser and coarser, you're going to watch that reliability drop off because you're losing the variability associated with the individual differences. Sometimes people will also say if they're doing, you know, like an extreme group analysis where they're, well, we just got rid of all the people in the middle. And it is true that it's easier to tell the difference between high and low people if you don't define high people and low people as being just on either side of the median, but you define them as being, you know, some chunk that's up at the top and some chunk that's down at the bottom. That's true. But the idea that somehow you're eliminating things that aren't very reliable in the middle anyway is actually kind of, well, isn't it ironic? Because (laughs) if you learn anything about item response theory, what you will learn that differentiates it in part from classical test theory is that reliability isn't just something that characterizes the entire continuum, but there are points along the continuum where there is greater reliability and points where there's less reliability. And the points toward the middle actually have higher reliability. So you're throwing some information away, actually in a very sensitive part of the distribution. So I think, again, it's kind of a tension in part between these colloquial notions of reliability and what we actually mean statistically and from a measurement perspective about reliability. But it's just not really correct. But it feels like it, right? It's truthiness. (laughs) The truthiness is anyone can read the news to you. I promise to feel the news at you. But one thing to keep in mind, and I do like being reminded of this occasionally, is a binary variable contains the least amount of numerical information you can possibly have in a measure. Mm -hmm. You either have a zero or a one. There is no other information in it than that. And that notion of, oh, I'll categorize because it will make it more reliable actually works in the opposite way. All right. So you said it has a truthy feel about it. Let me push that just a little bit further and say, are there situations where you think that it will still have meaning from an analytical perspective? 
I hope so, because that's what I've done in the past myself. <laughs> so I'm going to go with a hard yes on that one. Well, all right then. Sure. You know, for saving some face. <laughs> I do think there are some situations in which you could use this. First, as a clinician, I still am hardwired to believe in diagnostic status, mm -hmm. that if you have true taxa that you believe exists and that there are qualitative differences, I am comfortable with those kinds of distinctions if done thoughtfully and well. Mm -hmm. The other one, though, are things like in my field of work in drug and alcohol use, you often have these count variables that are highly skewed. You have a building up at zero. Sometimes it's called a zero inflation. So you're looking at teenagers and you're saying, how many times in the past 30 days have you consumed five or more drinks in one sitting? That's a very typical item for heavy drinking. Well, thank goodness, the majority of kids, depending on the characteristics of your sample, are going to say none. Never have I ever. Never have I ever drank five or more drinks in one sitting. Mm -hmm. But a few kids say, oh, once, and fewer still twice or three or four. And you have some problem kids who are maybe, say, four or five or six. But picture in your mind's eye, which I continue mm -hmm. to do, <laughs> a histogram where maybe 90% are zeros. Right. If I go to a model to fit that, not only is that going to be extremely challenging from an analytic standpoint, but also from a theoretical one, I'm actually pretty comfortable in saying, in the last 30 days, have you consumed five or more drinks on at least one setting, yes or no, mm -hmm. and use that as a binary dependent variable. I have done that, and I'm comfortable in doing that, because I think that's a situation where you pick your battles. If you have 90% zero in this long tail, is at some point it's pretty tortured to do a zero inflated negative binomial mm -hmm. where you just don't have information out in that tail to distinguish one from two, from three, from four, from five. And with a count variable like that, it can be meaningful to make a distinction between people who have engaged in heavy alcohol use and people who haven't engaged in that. Not unlike smoking, for example, right? You have a zero, meaning I have never smoked, and then the rest of the scale is how much you might have smoked. And it can be very meaningful to distinguish between people who have never smoked and people who have. There might, in fact, be some circumstances where it really is a reasonable thing to do. But I would hope that people are going to reflect on this, right? That they don't just go knee-jerk straight to some sort of dichotomization. There's really hard thinking about the nature of the variable, where meaning lies, and that they don't run away from a lot of the modern analytic options that we have that I think can help deal with these things properly. And every issue of psych methods that goes by, we're better able to handle these kinds of data. Yeah. Maybe a decade ago, maybe longer, I have a paper where I artificially categorized age and made a young and an old group. Hmm. All right, I did exactly what we're talking about. And I even did a median freaking split <laughs> to do this. Why did I do this? Because I had a longer con. We had a multiple indicator latent factor. It was binary. We were interested in differential item functioning and impact. Mm -hmm. We were working within an item response theory framework. 
Dave Thyssen has made these remarkable contributions in multiple group IRT. Mm-hmm. I needed two discrete groups to be able to look at different impact as a function of age because there were no other options available. And I was willing to pay the Reaper on that, knowing full well what the limitations were, but I had a longer con. Well, then in drunkenly stumbles Dan Bauer, mm-hmm. who comes up with moderated nonlinear factor analysis. And one of the big things that this allows is we can write nonlinear constraints for our model as a function of a continuously distributed variable such as age. Well, that wasn't available to us at the time. It is available now. And we have several follow-up papers where we treat age on a continuum and talk about different impact across the number line of age. But I cut the deal I needed to make at the time to achieve what I wanted to, Mm -hmm. and now I don't. And there are new ways across many, many analytic strategies that result in us not having to cut that deal. For sure. So in the full spectrum of things, there's the fancy high horsepower stuff that you're talking about that people can employ. But even the folks who are saying, well, you know, we usually just do ANOVA, I think we would say... No, go ahead and move to a general linear model. And if you think there are nonlinear relations, you think there are interactions, we have and we have had techniques for dealing with those kinds of things for, you know, half a century. So start using interaction terms, start using nonlinear terms. And there's actually way more information in these types of analyses. As you said earlier, right, this is part of a larger path modeling framework. As you start to introduce what you just referred to, moderated nonlinear factor analysis, but even that paradigm is flexible to handle things that have nothing to do with factor analysis. I recently used that in a project where I was doing both moderation and mediation, and I wanted to know whether or not both moderation and mediation effects were themselves functions of some other variables. And so I adapted this framework to be able to write those particular parameters themselves as functions of continuous covariates rather than just using these high-low splits on there. So we have machinery ranging from the stuff that's been around for a long time to some more modern stuff. But I really, really implore people to stop the dichotomous thinking as much as possible and move into some of these other analytical frameworks that will be more powerful, which is a lot like saying giving you more bang for your sample size buck, and that also will just provide more information and a richer understanding of what the heck is going on with your variables. And you are not off the hook if you subcon collapsing variables to the subjects themselves. <laughs> right? <laughs> Think about this as you gather your data. Yeah. If you have an ordinal variable that bins counts, this is very common in substance use. In the past seven days, how many drinks have you had? None. One to three, four to seven. All right, making the subject collapse your variables doesn't get you <laughs> off the hook. I didn't do it. Wasn't me. I don't know. Talk to Eric. He's the one who knows what's going on here. <laughs> just know that when you're gathering in that way, you're just making the subject do the course categorization instead of you doing it yourself. I think that's a great point, one that's often not made explicit. I like that. There is one last point that I'd like to make, 
And that has to do with the difference between what we do for analysis and what we do for communication to whoever our audience might be. So it might be the case that you do one of these really sophisticated analyses like Patrick was talking about, or you even do something that's regression related, something that really would be recommended that takes advantage of the continuous nature of your data. But then you have this other voice that says, how am I going to make people understand this? How am I going to go out to a more lay community and try and communicate this? And it is absolutely the case that people often are able to take in complex information when it is simplified for them. But I don't think that's a rationale for actually doing the simple analyses. I think the frameworks that we have absolutely already lend themselves to being able to do those kinds of things. If we just take a quick little example... If you were doing, you know, a moderated kind of regression, you don't need to categorize your moderator. You can use the regression information you have to say, well, what would the slope be if we picked, you know, sort of a higher level of the moderator or a more middling level of the moderator or a somewhat low level of the moderator? That doesn't mean you have to do the entire analysis in some sort of coarse way because you have all of that information there. And I strongly endorse people doing those kinds of things to be able to communicate to an audience. But to me, that doesn't mean you go back and you just do the analysis at that really base level to start. I think probing the interaction, as you just described, is a really nice tie to a lot of what we're talking about. Because again, back in the day, you might artificially categorize parenting into... uh, high parenting, you know, medium parenting and low parenting in terms of some kind of measure of effectiveness. And then look at, you know, is there a difference in high, medium and low parenting in these three discrete groups? But as you describe, we don't have to give that up. What we do is retain the natural continuum and then say, what does the model imply for an individual who is a standard deviation above the mean, who is at the mean, Mm -hmm. who is a standard deviation below the mean, and we're able to look at those conditional relations across the continuum without pulling out our carving knife and lopping up a Mm -hmm. tertile split and then running into all the problems that we've been talking about. That's right. I believe before it was, pick a point, pick a point, pick a point. (laughs) Dude, I'm done. All right. The only last message I have is for Henry and for Penny. You don't have to be like Eric. You don't have to be a hater. There is still hope for you. (laughs) And Eric, if you think that we are just old, boring people, you might be right about that. Okay, you might be right. But I know somebody else who is learning a lot about statistics, who does a lot of statistics, who is trying to use statistics in research, who is one of the coolest people ever. And that is the person driving the car right now, your mom. So on that note, we thank Sally for submitting the question. Thank you, Patrick, for the opportunity to talk about this issue. I think it is a really important practical issue, and I hope it was helpful to some people who are out there. Take care, everyone. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hi, Quanta Dudes. This is Eric. Thanks for answering my mom's question. I'll admit, maybe that episode didn't totally suck, but you're still old. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your child-punishing audio entertainment, and please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our completely redesigned website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. 
Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch for your Thanksgiving cornucopia at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, the podcast equivalent to the extended re-release of Taylor Swift's All Too Well. Both are examples of things that are three times longer than they probably should be. Quantitude has been brought to you by the country of Australia, whose notable contributions to the world include exceptional wine, the electrifying music of ACDC, inexplicable Australian rules football, and truly awesome kids like Eric, Henry, and Penny. By the median, reminding you that it remains a wonderfully robust measure of central tendency no matter how often it has been misused to create artificial groups from continua. Indeed, the whole sordid affair just makes it very sad. And by the Children's Television Workshop, who due to political pressures must regrettably cancel Big Bird's scheduled encouragement that children listen to Quantitude, and will instead focus on less controversial topics like vaccinations. This is most definitely not NPR. All right, where are we dropping, boys? Patrick? 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 Okay, this time's gonna be it. Come on, baby. Die, die, die. <laughs> okay, where are you coming from? Back corner, back corner, back corner. No, other corner, other corner. Back, 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 back. Ooh, ooh. Okay, yes. Uh,